0: The same God who never fails, but will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the waiting. The same God who's never late, is working all things out. You're working all things
1: From north to south and east to west We'd hear Christ be magnified And were the whole earth echoing his eminence his name would burst from sea and sky. From the rivers to the mountain tops, we'd hear Christ be magnified. And oh, Christ be magnified let his praise arise. Christ be magnified in me. Oh, Christ be magnified from the altar of my life. Christ be magnified in me. Is that your prayer this morning, that he's magnified in when every creature finds its inmost melody and every human heart its native cry then in one enraptured hymn of praise will sing christ be magnified oh christ be magnified let his praise arise christ be magnified in me oh christ be magnified from the altar of my life christ be magnified in me so i won't bow down to idols i'll stand strong and worship you and if that puts me in the fire i'll rejoice because you're there too I won't be formed by feelings, I'll hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, then I'll be crucified with you. Cause death is just the doorway into resurrection life. If I join you in your suffering, then I'll join you when you rise. And when you return in glory with all the angels and the saints. My heart will still be singing. My song will be the same. Oh, Christ be magnified. Let his praise arise. Christ be magnified in me. And oh, Christ be magnified from the altar of my life. Christ be magnified in me.
2: imitations 3:22 through 26 says the steadfast love of the lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end his compassions never fail they are new every morning great is your faithfulness the lord is my portion says the soul therefore i will hope in him the lord is good to those who wait for him to the soul who seeks him it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the lord We serve a good and faithful God, whose love for us is never failing. His heart overflows with compassion and mercy. There is no room for anything else, no place for evil or deceit or harm or idols. He has chosen to love us despite our shortcomings. And in the midst of life's uncertainties, we must focus our hearts and minds on the one true God. Our hope lies in not only who Christ is, but what he has done and will continue to do for us grief, pain, and sorrow in this life are unavoidable, but what will get us through is the joy that God promises, for it is only in him that we find hope in our hopelessness and the promise of joy in our sorrow. So whatever you've done and wherever you've been, God's mercies are new for you every morning, and his steadfast love for you will never fail. Great is his faithfulness. Great is thy faith.
1: fail not as thou hast been thou forever will be great is thy faithfulness great is thy faithfulness see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Lord, To me. I love you, Lord, for your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wait up, until I lay my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. For all my life you have been faithful, all my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God.
0: I love your voice. You have led
1: goodness
3: of God. Because
0: your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. my life lay down and surrender
3: now, I give you everything. Your goodness is running after, it's running after. Me.
4: life's going well, it's easy to sing like that, isn't it? When life's a little hard, as it can tend to be, these words are a little more challenging, but also a lot more meaningful. Our God is good, and that good God is with us today. As we go to prayer this morning, let's go with this idea in mind that he's at work in whatever struggles, or valleys, or mountains we might be climbing, or whatever situation we find ourselves in, That good God is already at work in our lives. Many of you have commented and shared or have have heard about what's happening at at Asbury Seminary this week, Asbury College, where revival's kind of broken out from a one-hour-long chapel service on Wednesday, and they're still meeting even in this moment. People are driving just to be a part of it, and revival has broken out. And we, we love to hear those stories, don't we? But the reality is it's, it's it's not easy to duplicate. And we're not going to really attempt to do that today except for to put ourselves in the same posture, to put ourselves in the same position that opened the door for this movement of the Spirit going on in Kentucky right now. And that's not something we can put on a calendar. It's not a date or something that we plan. Rather, it's how we respond to a Spirit that's already been poured out whether it's in a heart of repentance. Revival is always birthed in repentance. So to say that we long and hunger for revival, know that it's birthed in confession. When we say we want it, let's make sure we understand what it is we want. It's birthed in testimony, whereas people give praise and testimony to the grace of God in their lives. We're not afraid to share our stories. It's given evidence through our acts of worship. We worship him humbly with a genuine sincere heart. We're going to pray with a like heart and like spirit with those at Asbury this morning. And not in an effort to duplicate, but rather to put ourselves in the same place. To experience the same God. To recognize the same poured out spirit that's here even today. How might we respond to his promptings, his questions, his invitations? We go to prayer today. Let us come humbly, expectant. God's going to work and move. See what God does among us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the good reports of lives saved. Of the testimonies, Lord, being shared from children to teenagers to college age to to, to adults of all age in between how attractive, Lord, this recognition of your spirit is as people are driving for hours to be apart. part. That itself is a beautiful thing. But Father, I pray you'd also remind us that we don't have to drive hours to experience your poured out spirit. You are here in this place right now. Help us, God, to recognize that you're here. But truly, Father, understand what it means to sit beside you. The Lord recognize again what revival is all about, why it's such a beautiful thing, and why it's something we should desire. We find in its roots this idea of confession. And Lord, if I could be honest, I'm not sure how good we are at times in the church at confessing. We should be. Lord, we've gotten away from it. It's if we're ashamed, we're not, We're afraid of what people might think. We're too proud. We don't want them to know that we failed or where we struggle or that we failed again. We keep it in. We dress it up. We pretend, Lord, as if life is okay. All the while, we've got these things in our lives that just don't belong, that keep us separated from you. Lord, I pray that we as a church, a faith family, would have a repentant heart today. Corporately and individually, Lord, help us to be aware, to listen to your leading. The Spirit reveals, Lord, and we would quit making excuses. Quit trying to justify. Acknowledge those things that separate us from you, those sinful choices, decisions, actions. Lord, we would seek forgiveness. The God, we would hunger for this real expression of grace. Lord, out of that, out of this this cleansing that you do within us. So much more than just a covering, Lord, you cleanse us. But out of that would come this testimony that we cannot keep to ourselves, we can't keep it in. We have to share with others what it is that you have done. Too often, Lord, we hear the voices of the world much louder than our own. Not that we want to get into a screaming match. it's not what it's about, Lord. But there's power in our testimony when we're giving praise to you and we're letting others know what it is you've done. Help us not to be quiet when the opportunity arises or when you present a chance for us to tell of the the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. Then God, out of that, may may we worship genuine, pleasing worship. So much more than a song, Lord. It's a lifestyle. It's an attitude. It's 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 a it's, how that we, it's, it's an action, God. It's something that we do every moment of our lives. Every choice that we make, might they be worshipful? Might they give you praise? Because God, when we find ourselves living life reflective, revival, those struggles that we deal with, while they're still very real, they're put in perspective. Our life in this world is temporary. This, this world is not our home. We are just passing through. There's something so much greater waiting for us. But Lord, so much, we, we've gotten too comfortable at times. And when our earthly lives get unsettled, we often struggle with that. So God, help us today to not unpack our bags, but to realize, God, there's something greater waiting for us. Lord, in that perspective, our giants become much smaller and our God becomes much bigger. We do acknowledge, Lord, the physical needs in this place today that need a touch from you. The doctor's reports, Lord, that have been discouraging or encouraging or whatever that might be. Might we be reminded that you are our great physician? I pray for the relational needs in this place. In the midst of revival, Lord, we find reconciliation. We find restoration. Again, birth in forgiveness. God, I pray that you would restore those marriages that need help today. Those connections between parents and children. Or our friends or co-workers, whatever it might be. You be the bridge. Pray for the lonely and the lost, the wandering. Pray for the unforgiven. You know our hearts. You know each of our needs. You know us by name. I pray today, God, your spirit would speak. Not the words of some pastor today that they would hear, but Lord, they would hear from you. But Lord, we would leave this place changed, not because we've been together, because Lord, we've been in your presence. There's no better place for us to be. Wherever it is we are in our faith journey, whether we haven't started yet or taken the first step, or we've been at this for a long time, for decades, wherever it might be, Lord, there's still room for us to grow. Something new for us to learn, more work for you to do. And God, we just rend our hearts before you. We give you access and permission to do what you need to do today, to continue shaping us into the people you would have us to be. For your glory, God, we give you praise this morning. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you. So, as you can see, our pizza pile is getting a little bit bigger. Isn't that awesome? And I added a few boxes this week. They weren't all my pizzas that I ate, but <laughs> some of you kept bringing them in, so we make them bigger. And this week, if you're wondering where I went, I kind of kept it simple, and I went to a, a local place called Donato's. Now, I've tried to avoid kind of the name brand chain-type places, but, but this week was different. It, it, was, it was unique, and while Donato's is also a very traditional Ohio-style pizza with, with a thinner crust and edge-to-edge edge sauce and toppings and cheese, I know I've already shared that before, but the important part of enjoying a good pizza that I got to experience this week often has less to do with what's in the box and more to do with who's sitting at the table with us. And this week, my son had a preschool class trip. We went to Donato's Pizza, where his class got to make their own pizza. We had a picture of him making his pizza here, share with you. And then they got to put the pizza on—well, they didn't actually put it on the oven. The, the, um, the workers there at Donato's put it on the oven. Then they got to watch it come out the other side. Fascinating. That, That's—no, uh, it's really not. I sit there and watch a pizza oven, push the pizza through very slowly. But they're, they're staring at it, waiting for it to come out the other side. Then they get to put it in the box, and we got to sit down at the table and get to eat his pizza that he had made himself— and it was like the best pizza in the world because he made it himself. And oftentimes, isn't that, doesn't uh, your, your, um, those that you're with, doesn't those that are sitting at the table with you make up for a bad pizza? This was really good pizza. It wasn't bad. But often, those sitting with us, Trump, what's in the box? And we're going to talk a little bit about that today and, and the influence that others have upon us, the influence that our world has upon us. And, and I want us today to not miss the significant impact, or the influence, the direct influence, or sometimes the gods that we allow into our lives because of those that we allow to sit at the table with us. Sometimes they can help us. Sometimes they can hold us accountable, but they can also distract us. They can also tempt us or mislead us. Too often we share a table with the values of this world, If we're not careful, it's easy for us to get hooked. And the world reels us in. Imagine the TV commercials you see. They're communicating a message to us. You need this. Your life will be better if you had this. If you just go out and and have what we have, then you would be fulfilled. You would be complete. We see it in in every every source of media that we digest or take into our lives every week. If you do a simple search on your computer, you're looking for something just... Completely innocuous. They will help you. Facebook will then flood your feed with ads for the thing that you're looking for. Trying to meet that need that we think it is that we have. Too often, (coughs) we let those at the table with us fill our lives with things that we just don't need. The latest, the greatest, the newest, the best. As if that will bring fulfillment satisfaction. It's a lie that the world tells, but many of us have bought into it. Many of us want to believe it, because we're missing out on what it is that our true God offers to us. See, this idea of sitting at the table, is not a a unique one that we've created, but one that Jesus Christ created. An invitation to his table, where there are no other gods, where we see him in his genuine Helpful, life-transformative self where we get to experience who He is. Why would we hunger or want to sit anywhere else if the world reaches out, invites us to join them? Before too long, we've fought into, if you will, the little gods at war for our lives of money and success stuff. Luke chapter 18, there's this account that we're going to focus on this morning. It seems to be about money, and there's an obvious takeaway where that is true. But if we go a little bit deeper, we're going to discover it's really about idolatry. It's really about a little God that sat on the heart of this certain ruler that we read about in Luke chapter 18, who's then confronted with a choice. See, Jesus always gives us a choice. God wants us to know that we get to choose. It's not just something that we have to live with. Rather, it's something that we get to decide. He was a man who was accomplished, a man who had achieved and had accumulated much, but had begun at some point to worship these gods of success. They had become an identifier, a measure, if you will, something for others to see. So beginning in verse 18 of Luke chapter 18, scripture tells us that a certain ruler. We can find the same account in Matthew, and Matthew's account points out that he was young. He was the young, rich, young ruler. But in Luke 18, we see a certain ruler. And he, he goes to Jesus, he has a question for Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That itself is a good question. It's a question I hope that all of us have asked at some point, or have come to understand what the answer is, because that's something we are all going to be faced with. But he goes to Jesus, says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now what Luke does, what Matthew does also in his account, is points out that there's... Reasons behind his question. He's not coming because he just simply wants to know how to, to inherit eternal life. That there's a motive, if you will, behind the scenes. And often, if we're honest, we come to God with hidden ulterior motives, just like this. Motives that are predicated and dictated by the little gods in our lives. This rich young ruler, uh, the Greek would indicate that he's a p- person of authority that he has this, uh, 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 an official position of some sort. He's young. He's a ruler. He's been given this position, perhaps. So because of this, he's driven by success. He likes kind of climbing the ladder, if you will, what the Scripture would indicate to us. And in this moment, we see in his life this false god is sitting upon the throne of his heart. Because the question itself kind of gives away how he lives his life. He says, what must I do? What must I do? All his life, the things that he's done has brought about success or or earthly recognition or or, or position, if you will. But in this moment, he comes to the good teacher, to Jesus. He knows that Jesus really holds the keys to this. He's at least acknowledging that much. He sees that Jesus is at work in so many other lives and he wants Jesus to work in his life. He goes, what must I do to acquire or to earn eternal life? He sees eternal life as this measure of personal success. I got all these great things, but I want to live forever. And I think he's wondering or hoping that there's a price that he could pay, that there's so much work that he could do. But he sees this as this this ultimate expression of success, his eternal life. It's not even getting to heaven he's concerned about. What do I have to do to live forever? To continue this good life that I'm experiencing now. We're often drawn to these gods of success because, well, these gods allow us to sit on our own throne of our hearts, to live life to satisfy our own needs, wants, and desires. It's about what we accomplish, about what we've been able to get done, about what we've achieved. And he thought salvation was something to be earned, another goal to be accomplished, another page in his portfolio. What must I do? to acquire and to earn eternal life. And Jesus, as he often does, doesn't jump right into the answer. He knows his heart. He knows his intention. He knows what he's really asking. And the, the question that Jesus responds with is, why do you call me good? Now, I'm sure that wasn't what the the, the young ruler wanted Jesus to respond with. And Jesus answers and kind of disarms him, peels away his entire argument, gets right to the heart of what's really going on says, no one is good except God alone. No one is good. You call me a good teacher, but no one is good. As if to say, there's nothing you can do that will help you earn what it is you, you desire. You're not going to get there. But just to kind of string the guy along a little bit, Jesus continues. And in verses 20 and 21, he says, You know the commandments. Do not murder I'm sorry, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. Those are the those are the commandments Jesus then communicates to the certain ruler, and here's what he says. That's great. All these I've kept since I was a little boy. He's really starting to feel good about himself. Jesus knew that would be his response. He's done the right things. He's kind of lived life the right way according to the world's standards. And Jesus gives the man an answer that kind of he he thought he would get. That's what he wanted to hear. Yes, I've done all that. I've kept the commandments. I'm golden. I've got my ticket punched. I'm going to get eternal life. The reality is other than Jesus, no one's pulled that off successfully. Completely. Without error, without fault. Jesus is trying to help the man. By first pointing out that there's no one good except God alone. But he's not connecting the dots. He says in verse 21, I, I've kept all these things. And what we see that he's putting his hope in his religion. And we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. And his religious rule keeping had become also a God in his life. Because there was no worship of God in his keeping of the rules. He was simply trying to build himself up. And we see in verse 22, Jesus kind of really on a burst his bubble so to speak and Jesus takes direct aim at the God sitting upon the man's heart the God that was at war with the man's life when he heard this Jesus said to him you still lack one thing sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven then come follow me so there's, a, there's two parts Jesus' answer. And what we see is that when he heard this, the certain ruler heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. The adjective we see in Scripture used to describe the man's wealth, this word great, is a word that puts him ahead of almost everyone else. He was like the top of the financial food chain in this story. There was not much more for him to do other than to keep accumulating. As we read this story of this rich young ruler, we might think that it's about money, but it's not a story about money. It's one about idolatry, because idolatry is what this man's really struggling with. And Jesus does to the young ruler what he does to so many of us, or is doing to so many of us through these weeks, this conversation we're having. He puts himself in direct competition with what it is that we love the most. And he says to us, as he said to them, To him, choose. You get to choose. It's either money or it's me. It's either stuff or it's me. All of the above is not an option. I wonder why it is that we struggle so often with the stuff in our life. We might look to him and say, well, that really was a big deal. Jesus asked him to sell everything that he had. What if he would say the same to us? Or how little or how much it is we might have, would it be willing, would it be honest enough to say we would also struggle with that option or that choice. I think too often though we look at it as if well he wants us to sell our stuff and as if that's the end of it. But there's a second part to Jesus' invitation. It says then come and follow me. Then the following the young ruler didn't find value. It's in the following that the young ruler didn't see what it is he really wanted. It's in the following that the young ruler failed to connect the dots that to inherit eternal life to do exactly what Jesus is inviting him to do. To follow. To become a disciple. To become like Jesus was. Scripture tells us he was sad. Why would one be sad if you have great wealth? Because deep down, I think he realized there's still something significant missing. But he just couldn't let go. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. uh, We've read this recently. We read it again. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says. Either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. That's why this idea of competing gods or having a love seat upon our hearts isn't real. There's not room for two. There's only room for one. We see often in Scripture money is portrayed as God's primary competition As we tend to look to money to do the very things for us that God wants to do. Here are the lies that the God of money has told us. Money will satisfy us. (laughs) We only had enough of it we only had a little bit more of it, then we think happiness will come. I'll be content if I just had a little bit more. I'll take more time off if I just had a little bit more. I'll spend more time with my wife and kids or my husband and kids or my family if I just had a little bit more. If I could get rid of this bill or this debt, then life would be a little bit more satisfying. The problem is, and each one of us can testify to is there's going to be another bill. There's going to be something else waiting for us. There's always going to be more. When we, come, when we start pursuing this God of money, it's it's a cycle. It's a trap, and we never get out of it. We understand what that means. We, we live it, but yet we still struggle with it. We'll be happy if. I'll be content when. I can finally retire when I get to this place and point. I'm a pastor. I don't know if I'll ever retire. Trust me, there's going to be points where I want to. I don't know if I'll be able to afford to, and I don't care. God will take care of that. He's promised me that. We've heard the phrase that money won't make you happy. But sometimes our lives don't reflect that. We keep pursuing what it is that others have. We see it on TV. We want that. We have to have it. We want the latest and the best. Because it'll keep us from being miserable. It'll finally bring us fulfillment. This lie that money satisfies us, we we know in our hearts deep down it's not true. Is that reflected in how we live our lives? The second lie is the money means that we matter. I don't think we'd actually would say that out loud, but I wonder if our actions or our attitudes don't sometimes support that lie. We think the money makes us significant, and we often judge our worth by how much we are or how much of our monetary, our monetarily, we are worth, instead of looking to God as our source of identity. We look at the lifestyle that we choose to live or try to live as if money is what makes us matter. What if we don't believe that money will make us secure. More than satisfaction, it kind of gives us a sense of security. If we're not careful, we put our hope in the money that we have. Or the money that we have in the bank or the money that we've saved. And where we've placed our hope, we've talked about these previous three weeks, is where often we've placed our faith. The direct reflection of the God who sits upon our hearts. We wrongfully assume or think that if we have enough or save enough that we could take care of ourselves. Forgetting all along that God is the one who's promised to do that for us. Take care of us. The fourth lie we have, where we dig a little bit deeper into some of these, is that money will save us. The real problem with idolatry is that we lock onto something other than Jesus Christ for our
3: salvation.
4: When we're lonely, we look for a relationship to save us. When we're empty, we look for possessions to kind of fill our lives. When we're depressed, we might look for food or for some other form of comfort, as we talked about last week, to kind of save us or to help us feel better. It it just goes on and on. When we're apathetic, we might look to work. When When we're proud, we might look for status. When we're worried, we might look for money. What is it that we look for? to bring about salvation in our own lives? What is it that we look towards to bring us hope? That God? Is it something else? What is it that you measure success and satisfaction and contentment? What is the measure of those things in your life today? Perhaps you've heard the name Millard Fuller. Maybe you, I'm sure you, you know about him even if you don't know him. At age 29, he became a millionaire. He said he brought his wife everything she could possibly want. One day, Miller Fuller came home and they found a note announcing that she had left him. So Miller went after his wife. And when he finally found her in a hotel that they talked in the wee hours of the morning, and she poured out her heart and helped him to see the things that society says are supposed to be so satisfying, left her cold and empty. And she couldn't do it any longer. He was dead on the inside. Burned out. She wanted to live again. Kneeling at their bedside in that hotel, Millard and Linda decided to sell everything they had and dedicate their lives to serving the poor. He was a
3: millionaire.
4: Sell it all. And serve the poor. The next day being Sunday, they found the nearest church where they could worship and thank God for this new beginning that they've entered into together. They shared with the minister, told him all that had happened to them, the decision they'd made. The minister said, well, such a radical decision is really not necessary. You don't really have to do that. To which Miller responded, he told us it was not necessary to give up everything. He just didn't understand that we weren't giving up money and the things that money could buy. We were giving up, period. Miller and Linda would go on to start an organization that you've probably heard about called Habitat for Humanity to work even in our community. Corner of Seventh and Plum, I believe. There's a Habitat Humanity home that's just about to be completed. They walked away from everything that the world said that they needed for success and allowed their lives to be used to benefit others. And I believe today, Millard would say, he's richer now than he was then. And he let go and let God kind of take over That's how things tend to work. God's math doesn't always match our own, but we always end up better on the other side of it. This rich young ruler walked away. He probably became a richer, older ruler. He was pretty good at what he did, obviously, to have attained such status at such a young age. Well, perhaps the most contemplative verse we read in Luke chapter 18, we find in verse 22. He became very sad, Scripture tells us, Because he was a man of great wealth. You don't hear that very often, do you? That you're sad over great wealth? Who would be honest enough to have imagined what life would be like if you just found that winning lottery ticket? You would do it differently than everybody else, right? You would tithe 20%, not 10%. You would give extra. Keep just a little bit for yourself. You'd give the rest of it away. I'd rather not know, to be honest with you. If that were to ever happen to me, I don't want to be put in that situation. The rich young ruler became sad. His sadness, though, wasn't founded in his wealth. Or even in the response that Jesus gave. It was founded in this reality that he wanted to love both God and money. He wanted eternal life, but he wanted to hold on to what he had. But Jesus says, you've got to choose. That's not what he wanted to hear. But that's the invitation that Jesus gives to us. money wasn't the problem. The love of money was the problem. Success isn't a bad thing. It's the love of success that becomes a bad thing. Stuff is not inherently evil. It's the love of the stuff that we think we have to have, that we give a position, we're seated at our table, that then causes us to become idolaters. That's where the problem lies. Money had become his god, become his measure, his source of hope. He'd earned it, and just like his money, he wanted to earn his salvation. All the stuff—Are there things you have in your life that others can't touch? You won't let others kind of play with. I got, I got, I got, I got, <laughs> I got this Lego. Yeah, I'm 50 years old, and I like Legos. Is that a confession? I'm not not sure. Maybe there's a support group I could join. I'm not sure. I have one in my office. It's it's an X-Wing fighter. It's older than all of my kids. It's one of the original X-Wing fighters. I wish I still had the box. My son tells me it'd be worth a lot of money. But since I don't have the box, it's not worth as much. That's what he says. But I won't let my kids play with a toy because it's an original. I've seen what they do with their Legos. If I let them play with my Legos... It's not going to be a Lego anymore. It'll end up broken in in the trash. We all have those things, don't we, that we kind of hold on to, that we value, that we kind of put up on a shelf. I remember years ago, uh, we had one of the early iPads that that had come out. Um, Funny story, we couldn't find the iPad one day, and we're asking the boys where it was, and my son, um, I won't tell you which one, says, I know where it is. He ran upstairs enthusiastically. Well, he must really know where it is. So we took off following him. He went into the toy closet, starts digging through the closet. We're thinking, what in the world is the iPad doing in the toy closet? All the way back on the floor. And he finally emerges. He goes, here it is. He emerges holding on to a pirate eye patch. And he thought we found the iPad. And we had to laugh and chuckle at that. And a different son one day, though, had the iPad and was running through the house and tripped and fell. And the iPad became eyeglass. And I remember my wife calling me, preparing me. (laughs) When you come home, be gentle. And I'm glad for her wisdom in that because I looked in his eyes when he had to show me what had happened. It was just, there was this fear. Fear because this thing had been broken. And yeah, there was some frustration. Those things aren't cheap. But I don't want to ever be guilty of putting stuff above the people God's put in my life, where they've become more important to me. Stuff. Around the same time, there was a snowstorm. I, I just remember these things. I don't know why. And there was a car that was turning towards me, and they caught a piece of ice, and they slid, and they just kind of grazed my bumper. It just barely touched it. But they grazed it. And we stopped. We got out, and there was about a you know, 10-inch scratch on the side of my bumper, and the guy's like, <laughs> very apologetic. He says, said, I'll give you my insurance information, get that fixed. And I said, listen, look down the side of my car, what do you see? There were handlebar scratches from my kid's bikes all the way down the side of my car and I said, do you think one more scratch is going to make a bit of difference? He it's really not that big a deal. And he kind of smiled and said, are you sure? I said, yeah. It's just, it's just pain, don't worry about it. Now, I wouldn't do that all the time, don't get me wrong, but in that situation the relationship was more important than getting that little scratch fixed. Because in my mind, there was a thought, well, I could get my whole car fixed now because look what this guy did. But it wasn't his fault. Everything else was on there. Stuff. doesn't really matter. But when we find our measure of success in those things, we let them have control of our lives. We have to be willing to acknowledge that those are gods that are then sitting upon the throne of our hearts. And Jesus invites us to something different. See, just as much as this is about idolatry, it's also about trust. Do you really trust him to care for us the way that he's promised? Do you really trust him to meet a need that you might have? A need that you don't realize or even see how you can possibly meet it yourself. And yet God has it already figured out. Some things we just need to let go And let God dethrone those false gods upon our hearts so that he then can show us what a life that follows after him begins to look like. So that he then can care for us in ways that we can never do on our own. Joshua 24, verse 23. Hear this each week that we talk about and have this conversation. Joshua tells the people, throw away the foreign gods that are among you. Yield your hearts to the Lord, God of Israel. Yield your hearts to him. Throw away those things in your life that just don't belong, that are taking up too much time. Delete some of the apps on your phone. Get rid of the games; they're stealing time away from your family and your friends. Get rid of the stuff that that occupies uh, too much of your attention, your focus. Sit at a different table. The one you're sitting at is tempting and misleading you. Choose today get rid of, sell, do whatever you need to do, but don't let those things continue to have a seat at your table or in your heart. For some, even the idea of letting go makes you sad. Just as the rich young ruler walked away. Now you understand how he felt. It shouldn't be a sadness that motivates or we shouldn't be begrudging. All right, Lord, I'll do it because you've told me to, but boy, I'm really disappointed or sad about it. That should not be our attitude. It should be like, all right, Lord, if this is in the way, then I want to get rid of it. But we've become really good at trying to figure out, how can I do both? How can I do both? Jesus says, if that's your battle, then you've already lost. What might be in the way? in our relationship with Him. All of our own efforts, all of this being good, it's it's always going to leave us short. There's no both and. We'll never be good enough. never be rich enough. We'll never have enough. If we're never going to have enough, then let's just let God have all of it. See what He can do with it. What is it you're holding on to this morning? Maybe you need to let go of. you stand with me. This is a this is a, a you and God conversation. Picture you, you've gone up to Jesus, said, "Good teacher, what must I do? What must I do? Would you be willing to pray the same prayer this morning? Then listen as Jesus gives you his answer today Father. What must we do, Lord, to inherit eternal life? What must we give up? What must we, Lord, surrender? What must we let go of, God? What is it today in our lives that's preventing us from having this relationship with you? What is it, God, that's in the way? What is it, Lord, that we're trying to do on our own? What is it that we're trying to acquire or earn by our own efforts? What is it, Lord, that's getting in the way of us accepting your forgiveness, embracing your grace? What is it, God? Is it pride that's unwilling to confess sin, Lord? Is it stuff that we think we have to have to be happy? A certain style or a certain car or a certain lifestyle, Lord? What is it? Speak to us, Lord. What is that God in our lives that we've allowed to sit at our table take over? What is it? Now Lord, as you reveal to us, as you speak to us, I know you have. I pray the decision, the choice that you've given us, you Lord would have the boldness and the courage, the faith, Father, Father, to go and to get rid of, to go and to sell, to go and to throw away, whatever it might be, or to, to, to take action in this moment today against the very things that get in the way that prevent us from worshiping you. Father, we love you today. I pray, Father, that would be a statement we could say without hesitation regardless of what's in our pizza box today, might it begin with this idea, Lord, that we love you. Our response to your word today is simple. We get to choose. But our choice might require some actions, some things we might need to do. Pray, Father, we would be diligent. We would do what it is you're leading us in this moment. We would testify to your goodness. We let others know how faithful you are. Lord, when you continue to meet our needs in ways that we can't understand, you continue to add to our stories. God, then remind us. Remind us, Father, of your faithfulness. Thank you for the invitation to follow. Thank you for those, Lord, that have chosen today to do just that. Thank you, Lord, for the gods of our lives, those gods that war in our hearts that have been dethroned today. Go so with us, Lord, help us to live the life that you've called us to live as we follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.